Welcome to The Just Pod, a podcast by the Criminal Justice Section of the ABA, the unified voice of criminal justice. Welcome to this episode of The Just Pod. Today we have Cynthia Orr joining us. Cynthia, thank you for being here. Thank you very much, Emily. Thanks for having me on. So Cynthia is one of our former chairs of the criminal justice section and is currently managing partner of the firm Goldstein & Orr. We have Cynthia joining us to talk about the college admissions scandal, otherwise known as the Varsity Blues. So she's going to help us unpack what we've been seeing in the news and then also just provide some insight into the prosecution and what what we can expect as we continue to watch this case. So Cynthia, first of all, have we seen a case like this in white collar before where such a large group has been charged under one scandal? Sure. When scandals involve accusations that involve the public trust, like persons who have fiduciary obligations to other or involve the integrity of our institutions, we've seen a large number of these big prosecutions. Most people remember the most recent one being the Mueller investigation of foreign interference with our presidential elections of 2016. That scandal produced 35 prosecutions. A more historic one that older folks like myself might recall was called Operation Greylord. It was the federal investigation and prosecution into corrupt judges and other public officials in Chicago in the 1980s. Just for interest, public interest, the name Greylord came from the fact that judges in the UK wear wigs, gray wigs, and are called Lord instead of Your Honor. So we'll see it whenever we're worried about public integrity or public officials, things like that. Thank you. And what is the jurisdiction that is prosecuting this group? Also, what are the charges that were initially brought against the defendants? Well, the jurisdiction prosecuting these cases is the United States Attorney for the District of Massachusetts. That office has indicted 52 persons and their parents, coaches, exam administrators, and the gentleman who set up this operation as a money-making prospect, Mr. Singer. In addition, folks associated with admissions and numerous colleges are also involved in the cases. The charges that were brought by the office were conspiracy to commit mail and wire fraud, money laundering, federal programs bribery, and now we've seen most recently added conspiracy to commit racketeering. These offenses carry really serious penalties across the board. We're talking 5, 10, and 20-year maximum penalties for these offenses. All right, and we saw 13 parents and one coach that have already pled guilty in plea bargains. And that includes the actress Felicity Huffman, who is one of the more well-known defendants in this case and in this scandal. Can you walk us through the pros and cons of this choice to accept a plea bargain? Sure, Emily. The most significant pro is that an accused person's penalty is substantially lowered, both by operation of the law, and here I'm talking about the federal sentencing guidelines, and through prosecutorial and judicial discretion. And what I'm talking about there are the facts are defined by the prosecution when presenting it for a sentence in court, and the sentence will be based on that. 
And the sentencing judge often looks really favorably upon someone who's pled guilty and accepted responsibility and is showing contrition for committing an offense. Systemically, pleading guilty is good for restoring faith in our national merit testing systems, in this case, the integrity of the university admission process, and good stewardship of federal program dollars that fund education that are all implicated in this case. The cons, on the other hand, are that persons who plead guilty are branded with felony convictions, or a conviction, and that hobbles them for the rest of their lives because of the permanent losses caused by such a conviction, and they have to serve the immediate penalty that is imposed. And persons, we fear, and this is the greatest fear, persons may plead guilty just to get a lower sentence rather than risk the higher penalty of because of these really serious charges that have been brought, they may be pleading guilty because they're too afraid of the exponentially higher penalty they would get if they went to trial and were convicted. So we fear that someone that might be innocent would be pleading guilty to avoid what I just described, that higher penalty, and for shorthand, we call it the trial penalty. This means that systemically here, the con is, that it's cost us our precious right to trial, that crown jewel in the United States system of justice. Yes, and for our listeners, we have dug deeper into the questions or the concerns around the plea bargaining system in the U.S., and that's on a recent episode of the podcast, so you can look back into our past episodes if you're interested in taking a deeper dive into what Cynthia has just referred to. But circling back to where we're at in the case now. This week we saw a grand jury return additional charges against 18 parents and officials involved in the scandal that I believe have pled not guilty. And you mentioned racketeering earlier and that's the new charge, right? Right. Which is RICO, right? Mm -hmm. So what does the future of their case look like from here? I'm going to address this in general terms because I don't pretend to know what anything about each individual case. I haven't spoken to the U.S. attorney or these accused people. But I do know that just across the board in looking at this state of affairs, that the U.S. attorney's office has a really tough job. They have to balance concern for the integrity of our institutions, those pros that I just spoke about before, with the rights of the accused. People don't realize that prosecutors have to consider that as well. That's a really tall order. I think the way that the Boston office has, in a very matter-of-fact way, commented on what they're doing, advising the public of the charges against some of the most popular people in society, is laudable. I give it really high marks. We're not seeing these big press conferences or perp walks, so it's a very professional job. It's also important for people to know that when these charges are brought, it's through a grand jury indictment process, and that's a secret process. The accused person does not have a right to a lawyer in that process or even the right to appear before the grand jury. I think very few people in the public know how unfair that process is to the accused, and therefore they're going to assign a lot more credit to the fact someone's been indicted than they should. The fact someone has been charged means very little, in fact, because it's done in this secret way. I'm so glad that you're doing this important podcast because it sheds a light on this imbalance in power between the accused 
and the prosecution process. So what is happening about people deciding to plead guilty or not, or the fact that they're charged is much more complex than what we're hearing in the public media. And I think this is particularly educational for the public. I know we're going to continue to hear about this case for decades to come. And would you elaborate on this imbalance that you just referenced? Sure, Emily. I'm not suggesting anything has been done wrong by the prosecutors here. I'm just talking about an imbalance that exists in our system. It has to do with the fact that an individual citizen, no matter how wealthy they are or how popular, is really no match for the entire federal government and its secret investigation powers. The federal government has agents around the entire country who can act in coordination with any U.S. Attorney's Office. They have relationships around the world with other governments and legal processes around the globe that can be brought to bear against one citizen. For this reason, the suggestion that an accused might be too powerful or too wealthy to be successfully prosecuted is simply not valid. Each accused is at such a substantial disadvantage, the danger is the opposite. They may plead guilty simply because they cannot afford to defend themselves. Right, which would be the antithesis of what our justice system is supposed to represent. So, speaking of great powers brought against individuals, let's talk about RICO and how it's being applied in this case. We talked about how racketeering RICO has been the added charge brought this week. And the Criminal Justice Magazine Winter Edition speaks to the application of RICO in some recent cases, including Varsity Blues. So, Cynthia, what are your thoughts on the application of RICO in this case? Some have said it's an overreach. What are your thoughts? So, I have to agree with the article and commentators who say it's probably an overreach. Again, saying I I don't know the specifics of each of these cases, but this law was originally designed to go after organized crime to those nefarious, in-the-dark, shady operations. It was designed to attack loosely structured criminal organizations like the mob, so to say, and applied to groups of people who were accused of similar offense conduct that had common criminal actors or components. You knew we were in the rackets business, for example, and you knew that there were runners. You may not know who they were or what they were doing, but you were all joined in this joint enterprise. I think the choice of this offense here was made probably to extend the reach of the statute of limitations, that is, root out misconduct that occurred 10 years ago, the usual statute of limitations is five years, to allow prosecution of a group of people and suggest a concert of action instead of having to proceed to prosecute each person individually, so to package them together for efficiency's sake, to allow the admission of evidence that would not otherwise be admissible, like what normally would be hearsay is now admissible as a co-conspirator's statement, and to increase the penalty for all who are charged together. This is done by holding each individual responsible for the acts of all the others because it's reasonably foreseeable to them as members of the enterprise. And the two points I want to make about that is the idea that these folks join together in an enterprise I think is where the stretch is too far. 
I don't think any of these parents thought, gosh, I'm going to join with parents across the country to undermine the college admissions process. I think each of them acted individually, and I'm not so sure the actions of the other parents are foreseeable to them. But I do get where there's a valid legal claim that that exists, uh, that it's present, because all of these parents were dealing with Mr. Singer, and they had to have known they weren't his only customer. Well, one final question for you then, as we have walked through this case and talked about the prosecution and what we're seeing, what would you say is most noteworthy for a white-collar crime practitioner to keep in mind for their future cases? Well, I think over the years, and in this case as well, we've seen a real trend uh, for prosecutors to use tools that we hadn't expected them to use against our clients in the past. We're not talking typically in the white-collar case about someone who is committing these malum and say crimes, that is, someone who hits someone or kills them or robs them. We're talking mostly about crimes that are crimes because of laws and regulations that make them crimes. Although bribery, is, which is one of the offenses charged here, falls in the prior category. But what we're seeing across the board in white-collar crimes are this use of heavy, heavy penalties when the societal wrong is not as great as we see in the Malum and Say area. We see the application of this, I'm going to increase the charges to get you to plead guilty. And so I, I think we're seeing that more of that same theme that you can't depend on the same sort of rules of operation in a white collar case that you had seen in the past. I don't minimize for a minute the seriousness of these offenses and how important it is to have integrity with our federal funds and with the university admission and our merit testing processes. But I do think they are very different in kind from murder and mob racketeering and all the sort of insidious problems that come with those offenses. So a tip to the white collar practitioner, it's a a tougher road to hoe these days. Well, thank you, Cynthia. We appreciate your insights and your time. And thank you to our listeners for joining us on this episode of The Just Pod.